listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 215, in which we are featuring Sarah's new book. Need I say more? But first, the news. Last week, the country was riveted by a labor standoff unfolding in the Bronx between the merchants of the Hunts Point Produce Market, one of New York City's major produce distribution hubs, and about 1,400 union workers. The workers were beleaguered by COVID-19, several had died in fact, and they were tired of scraping by on about $18 to $21 an hour. That's above the minimum wage, but well short of a real family-supporting wage for this city. Meanwhile, the companies that operate the market rake in some $2 billion a year. The workers, who are collectively responsible for moving about 60% of the city's retail produce each day, demanded bigger raises than what the companies were offering. Their union, Teamsters Local 202, took a chance by going out on strike in the middle of winter in the midst of an economic and global health crisis, and they could easily have been replaced by scabs. But after seven days of striking, the Teamsters inked a fresh contract that included a 70-cent raise in the first year, followed by annual raises of 50 and 65 cents, on top of a boost in their benefits. It was less than what they had asked at the start, but well above the measly 32 cents per hour that the management had offered initially. And more importantly, there was the symbolism. The strike attracted a lot of solidarity and support inside and outside New York. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was there with a pack of Bustelo, as were several other politicians. Padma Lakshmi showed up with 150 pizzas. And the labor contingent of New York City's chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, full disclosure, I'm a member of this organization, offered strike support at the picket line. This was the first major private sector strike of so-called essential workers during the pandemic. And there was a sense that it was a pivot point in the growing consciousness and militancy of low-wage workers since COVID-19 began to ravage the country almost a year ago. It remains to be seen whether the leverage that the Teamsters found through this strike will spill over into other industries, but they definitely had the moral momentum on their side. And the widespread support for the strike showed that people recognized the paradox of calling workers essential and then treating them like they're expendable. I spoke to Francisco Flores, a second-generation Hunts Point worker, he's been there since he was 19, about why he went on strike and what he feels his union accomplished. As far as striking, what, what led up to it was, of course, every three years, we always negotiate contracts with the owners. So besides, you know, unlike this year, every other year was pretty much simple. We, you know, meet up, we'll have a few meetings. And before the date came, we always ended up settling the contract. We always agreed on something. So then this year, you know, was a little funny because from March up to now with the whole pandemic, you know, we did notice stuff slow down a little bit, you know, because restaurants closed and stuff like that. And but supermarkets were still open. So there was still business. So this time around, we came to them, you know, telling them about us working from March up to the time of the contract ended and about the guys who passed away while working from COVID and the guys that are sick now as we speak. So, you know, we just wanted a little bit of uh, somewhat like a bonus, maybe like a little thank you. So they kind of refused at the, at first. So, you know, we took it as a sign that, okay, maybe they're telling us the truth, but then we, we started hearing stuff about the 15 million they got from, uh, from the government for the whole COVID thing and all this other stuff. And then we noticed a few changes that they made inside the market as far as fixing certain 
things that were wrong in each warehouse. It just wasn't one company. It was all the companies at the same time. So we started to feel like, okay, they're trying to use this pandemic and the whole slow business and broke and uh, unemployment rate being at 40% to not just give us anything, but to try to take away stuff that we've already had in the contract for maybe 20, 30, 50, 50 years. You know what I mean? They took it as this is our chance to get them where we want them. And, you know, we just felt like, all right, listen, even if we don't get a raise, you guys are not taking anything that we fought for or people before us. My father worked in that uh, type of job for 30 years. So this is stuff that he fought for and the people before him. And you're not just going to take it away because you're crying broke over here. So, you know, of course, that's how the meeting ended. And, you know, we had a little back and forth and. They really, you know, I, like I said, I feel like they, they used the pandemic as their excuse. And they really put their foot down and they expected us to, you know, fold. And we wasn't going to do that. We, we couldn't do it. Because if we did it now, then I feel like they would have taken a, a advantage in the future. So, you know, I, me personally and a few of the other senior guys, you know, we talk the guys into it pretty much and say, listen, you know, I understand you guys are scared. We've never been through this. I've never been through this. But there comes a time in life where you got to stand up and fight. I was like, because if you don't, these guys are just going to do whatever they want to you. And because they know you're scared and you're not going to do anything, you're just going to take it. I was like, and that's not right. You know what I mean? I was like, my father went through that, taking crap from these people because he thought, that if he spoke up or if he did something to try to defend himself, he would get fired or, you know, he would get blackballed. So he just accepted what he had to take and, you know, just for that paycheck. And I always said, I'm not going through that. So your dad worked, uh, worked at the same market his whole life and, uh, and you as well. Right, right. My father did 30 years. When I was 19 years old, he took me to the market. He gave me a year after high school to see if I was going to go to college or do something. He saw that I wasn't into it, so he said, okay, come on. And that's where I've been. I've been there for 27, 28 years now. This strike is seen as um, probably the first major direct action done by uh, essential workers, I guess. I guess, why do you think this, this strike ended up being so important to so many workers across the country. I mean, you saw people coming from all over, uh, you know, trying to show support to you all on the on the picket line. Why do you think that in the midst of this pandemic, where we're hearing so much about essential workers doing so much for everyone else, why do you think it's particularly important that people saw you guys going on strike? Well, yeah, I, I think it's very important. I mean, because if you think about it, it's not just us. All the uh, essential workers are not being treated the way that they should. You know, we clap for them at seven o'clock, but then an hour later, we don't even know who they are. And I understand there's a lot of people who might live truck to truck and they're scared to take certain actions, especially if you're not 100% sure that you got your fellow workers that are willing to fight with you because that's what makes the fight. It's not just you, you need everybody to do it. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of people that are scared that just don't want to do it. You know, they just feel like it's bad timing, you know, with the pandemic and all this other stuff. And some people just are, uh, I guess they just believe what their bosses tell them half, half the time. 
You know what I mean? So they just are scared to do any type of moves. And, you know, we we were in the same boat. We were, we were all scared of it. We were worried, you know, half the guys that work in that market live check to check. But at the same time, like I said, you have to stand up and fight, you know, and I'm glad that this happened now. So it can show all the other uh, century workers that you guys can do this. If you guys stick together and stand up for what's right, then you'll get it. You know what I mean? Just just don't let it go by and just not, not say anything. Because if you don't say anything, you're not going to get anything. You know what I mean? And this is the time. Can you talk about what kind of impact the the virus has had on on workers? I mean, you, you said people, some people have died. And I guess, how did all the turmoil um, that's resulted from this pandemic, how, do you think that really changed people's attitudes in terms of what they were willing to fight for? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially now. I mean, if, if you know, those other guys that came to work, those are, those are the type of guys that love doing what they're doing. And of course, at the same time, they felt obligated to, to be there because they got a job to do. They got to take care of the city. And, you know, it's unfortunate that they caught it and passed away. We had about six guys pass away. And we probably had like another 20 guys who got sick from it. You know what I mean? But it's just, you know, it's it's something that's part, part of the job. I mean, you know, we had to, at the beginning, they were giving us PPEs, hand sanitizers and all that. But then somewhere between the middle of the whole pandemic, they just stopped. So we had to bring our own stuff and things like that. I don't know if maybe during that little gap was when guys really started getting sick and, you know, ended up passing away. Could have been outside stuff. But I know ever since the strike ended, they set it up. They set up a COVID-19 testing site inside the market. So now guys can get tested on the regular basis almost on a daily basis if they wanted to, just to make sure that they're good, you know, that everything's okay. Yeah, but, but still, right? I mean, it's this is one of those <laughs> occupational hazards yeah. that you didn't sign up for, I guess. Exactly. I didn't know that this was going to happen, you know? And it's, you know, like like I said, they, they can't close the place down because where's the city going to get their food from? That was Francisco Flores of Teamsters Local 202. Amazon has been in the news a lot this week. There was the report just today, as I'm recording this, that the company is rolling out fancy artificial intelligence enhanced surveillance cameras in its delivery vans, ostensibly for safety purposes, but drivers have called the cameras unnerving, big brother, and a punishment system. There was also the news that the Federal Trade Commission was making the company pay back $61.7 million in illegally withheld tips from its workers. According to the FTC complaint, the company regularly advertised that drivers participating in the Flex program would be paid $18 to $25 per hour for their work making deliveries to customers. The ads, along with numerous other documents provided to Flex drivers, also prominently featured statements such as, you will receive 100% of the tips you earn while delivering with Amazon Flex. Rather than passing along 100% of customers' tips to drivers, as it had promised to do, Amazon used the money itself, said Daniel Kaufman, acting director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Our action today returns to drivers the tens of millions of dollars in tips that Amazon misappropriated and requires Amazon to get drivers' permission before changing its treatment of tips in the future. 
And of course, Jeff Bezos himself is stepping back from his position in order to spend more time with his weird spaceflight company. But don't worry, he's still going to be executive chair of the board. So, you know, cool, I guess. But of course, the big news is the union vote at the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Bessemer, Alabama. Amazon, surprise, surprise, does not want a union at its plant, and the campaign is getting intense. The ballots will go out on February 8th, so next week, and 5,800 workers are in the potential bargaining unit. The warehouse opened last March in the early days of the pandemic, and the workers filed for the union election in November with the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, RWDSU, which said that over 2,000 workers had signed union cards when they filed. The New York Times reports that one of the successes of the campaign thus far has been that, quote, union organizers are also building their campaign around the themes of the Black Lives Matter movement. Many of the employees at the Amazon warehouse are Black, a fact that the retail union has used to focus on issues of racial equality and empowerment. And leading the organizing effort are about two dozen unionized workers from nearby warehouses and poultry plants, most of whom are also Black. Since October 20th, the poultry workers have been standing outside the Amazon gates every day starting at 4.30 a.m., urging workers stopped at a traffic light to join a union. Detailing the anti-union campaign that Amazon is paying for, Michael Senato at The Guardian writes, quote, Lawyers for Amazon are currently trying to appeal against the decision to allow the election to be carried out by mail and have requested the election be delayed until their appeal is reviewed. Ahead of the union election, Amazon has strongly encouraged workers to vote against the union through texts, messaging, an anti-union website, and several anti-union captive audience meetings with workers at the warehouse. In the texts, Amazon claims workers will be giving up your right to speak for yourself by signing a union authorization card and emphasizing union dues, claiming, quote, unions are a business, telling workers don't let the union take your money for nothing, and prompting them to visit their anti-union website, doitwithoutdues.com. Amazon has also sponsored ads on Facebook featuring their anti-union website and telling workers to vote no in the union election, end quote. So as noted above there, the company has been pushing for an in-person election during a pandemic when one of workers' key complaints has been that they are not provided enough protective equipment and distancing enough to keep them safe. It also, of course, pushed to expand the size of the bargaining unit to include seasonal workers and temporary workers who are harder to organize and, of course, much easier to fire. We won't know till the 30th of March what the results of the election are. And of course, we are somewhat used at this point to having exciting union drives in the South come apart at the last minute. So it can be hard sometimes to get our hopes up. That said, the attempts to unionize the South, unionize at Amazon, and fight for safety for essential workers in a pandemic will continue, whatever happens here, and we will be watching this one closely. If you're involved with this union drive at Amazon or any other organizing at the company, we want to hear from you, belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We won't tell Jeff Bezos, we promise. The streets of New York City are less crowded these days, but throughout the pandemic, as restaurants shut down across the city, the humble street carts soldiered on, selling tacos, falafel, and smoothies out of their mobile kitchens. With cooks tucked inside, the gas tanks sputtering away as they struggled to sell their food while stabbing off a deadly infection. 
Although all food businesses in the city have suffered massively from COVID-19 and the attendant lockdown, street food vendors have been hit especially hard because many of them have little to no access to federal relief programs like unemployment insurance, and many are operating in a legal gray zone. There are some 20,000 street vendors across the city, but just a few thousand of them have actual permits from the city, thanks to an arbitrary cap on the number of permits issued by the city that dates back nearly four decades. But in late January, the hot dog sellers and the dumpling hawkers and the halal cart guy finally got a hard-earned break from the city council. It passed landmark legislation that raises the cap from 3000 to 7000 over a 10-year period and effectively helps decriminalize street vending by setting up a civilian-led enforcement system for the permitting regulations instead of the police, who are known to harass street vendors pretty regularly. Although the law is quite limited, as it applies only to food carts, and although it doesn't completely repeal the cap, advocates say this new measure will help diminish the black market for permit rentals, which has basically forced many vendors to pay huge amounts of money to official vendors in order to temporarily lease out their permits. The law is a milestone for the Street Vendors Project, part of the Urban Justice Center. And full disclosure again, I interned at the Urban Justice Center a long time ago. The Street Vendor Project has campaigned extensively for decriminalization of street vending, and for greater recognition of the vital services and cultural vibrancy that street vendors contribute to the city. Ray Lee, Women and BIPOC Business Empowerment Organizer of the Street Vendor Project, said the new law provides much-needed relief for vendors who have been devastated by COVID-19. It's just really a historical win, you know, for um, street vendors who've had this cap placed on them since uh, 1983, right? This is about like 37 years now where... um, you cannot um, basically obtain your own permit. Uh, there's just no way. So for food permit um, vendors, they are forced to uh, go rent a permit in the underground market, which can run upwards to like twenty, twenty-five thousand a year. Which compared to you know obtaining your regular permit uh, from the city, that's only. Um, Just in terms of why um, we were able to kind of pass this legislation uh, this year, um, I think think the pandemic really exposed a lot of just inequity and, you know, of the system as a whole, right? And for street vendors, uh, they've been left out of uh, pretty much all relief. Right on a local and federal level, a lot of these folks are uh, immigrants. A lot of folks are undocumented. Right, um, they some couldn't get um, a stimulus check, and a lot of people can't. Um, uh, they're not eligible to get basic leave, or uh, unemployment insurance, or even you know most loans and grants uh, offered to small businesses. So um, for them. On top of that, they still have to, you know, pay a fee to rent their own permit just so they can vend in a legal way that they won't get um, harassed, harassed or ticketed by the police, um, Department of Health, you know, a lot of different agencies. It's just a huge burden, right? And this legislation is like one step that can help vendors relieve some of this burden, right? Like is one step to um, begin to fix this um, system of vending that's just been broken for decades. That was Ray Lee of the Street Vendor Project. 
While all the debating continues in Congress around what kind of rescue package we're going to get, one proposal stands out as a big shift in policy, especially if it's made permanent. Democrats are proposing to expand the child tax credit into a form of direct payments to families, ensuring that all parents get access to this money. I talked to Rachel West of Election Action for Mothers, a longtime organizer around such issues, about the proposal. What's good is, you know, that it's um, the amounts are based on the American Family Act, which we were supporting back last year. In fact, we wrote to then candidate Biden um, asking for his support of the American Family Act. And now his plan, the American Rescue Plan, is modeled on that act. And, you know, what's good about it is that um, it's the amounts are, are based on that, 3600 a year for children under six and 3,000 a year for children six to 17. Now we're, we're you know, really glad that money is being proposed because um, it, it, it'll just make a huge difference um, to women and families struggling you know, at this moment in time. And it would be like a family allowance, a child benefit. I actually have the experience of that having lived in England and received family allowance child benefit, um, which was money directly paid to mothers. Um, it was, it was you know, very good. We'd get the money through the post office. It was simple and easy. And we're hoping this proposal will be something like that. That's easy. Um, the fact that it's um, fully refundable is really key. Those, those are key words, fully refundable, because that's the change um, that the child tax credit will be expanded. For those of us that don't pay taxes because we don't have enough income, we're unemployed, although as mothers and caregivers, we're never, never unemployed, but we don't have an income um, or our income is too low to, to pay taxes. So that's, that would mean that it would you know, benefit the poorest of us. And poverty, as we all know, is huge in the US. I mean, 73% of the poor are women and children. And this will make a big impact on child poverty. Yeah, talk about, so there's obviously a history in this country that is, you know, quite nasty at times of blaming particularly women who don't work in big air quotes. Um, and that the history of, you know, the welfare reform um, taking away anything that might be direct payments to caregivers to mothers that would allow them to actually make those choices themselves. So I wonder if you could talk about why it's a big deal to sort of pr propose this now. I'm, oh goodness, how many years are we after welfare reform? To talk about the idea of, of universal payments to parents, to caregivers. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, there's been a long campaign, you know, decades of campaigning by organizations like ours the Wages of Housework campaign, now the Global Women's Strike and Women of Colour, you know, in the Global Women's Strike, we've been campaigning for decades for this, um, for the whole, you know, making the case. So the whole of society depends on caregiving work. And we fought welfare reform when it was brought in. Um, but, you know, there's been a, a, a long movement, of a women's movement organising for payment and recognition of caring work caregiving work, the welfare rights movement in the 60s, the, one of their demands was that 
you know, women should be get, getting a living wage for the work of child rearing back then. And it was, a you know, a massive campaign at that time led by black and, and indigenous women and, you know, made a, a big push that welfare should be called a wage. That was a demand. And, you know, there were various points along the way. We, um, Our organization and others were in Houston at the first women's conference, national women's conference, where a resolution was actually passed that um, there should be, you know, recognition and, and money for, for women's work. So there's, you know, there's a, a long history of women's organizing in this country for that. So we're glad that now and, you know, with the coronavirus, the whole issue is on the table and on the agenda in a way that, you know, has just shown it's made clear and laid bare the enormous amount of work that um, caregiving is. And I know being a single mother myself, you know, that it's, as Obama said, it's, you know, one of the hardest jobs or is the hardest job, jobs that exist. So, yeah, we're, we're glad to see recognition and payment. That's what we want is payment. Yes, exactly. Um, so talk a little bit about like, how could this go further? What are some things that you'll be watching as these debates happen as again, like, you know, Mitt Romney is proposing something, but it would replace a lot of already existing programs. So what are some things that we should be paying attention to in this proposal and watching out for in case they try to water it down? Uh, we're very con- concerned and are pushing for and we'll be you know, issuing an action alert soon. On, uh, with our demands, that the money go to the mother or, or primary caregiver. I mean, this is really crucial and must be recognized that it's it's key. You know, it's very concerning that in the U.S., one in four women suffer domestic violence, that women need the money to protect ourselves and our children. And, and studies show that if the money comes to women and the primary caregiver, you know, then, then for sure the children will be taken care of. So that's really crucial that we will be pushing for. Um, we think it should be permanent. We, you know, one year is in the proposal, but it must be made permanent and not just um, because of the pandemic going on, you know, and that women are are losing jobs paid jobs and then back in the home. No, we're already working in the home. And that is that, you know, we're in the workforce working um, as caregivers. And so therefore that that work should be recognized and paid for and, you know, in a permanent kind of way. Um, you know, it should be simple as it, like the, the system I described in the UK, where you just got a little book from the post office and went and cashed it out whenever you wanted, or you could save it up. You know, and we are asking, demanding that it be made available to undocumented caregivers, you know, who make up a big percentage of caregivers in this country and who work, you know, really hard. Um, And that, you know, how it's paid out should be, we should, as primary caregivers, have a say in that, you know, whether it should be paid monthly or yearly. Um, and then the other thing that's really important that it shouldn't be, you know, if, if those of us are on who are on benefits um, like TANF, housing, or other benefits, you know, that it shouldn't be um, that shouldn't be we shouldn't have to pay, or that our benefits be reduced, 
or um or or wages garnished in any way if there's any outstanding debt and then as i said fully refundable that that you know that must stay because that's the only way it's going to ensure that the poorest of us um, will get the money and the poorest of the poor are you know black and other women of color so and and child poverty is so high in the US now i mean i saw a statistic from the poor people's campaign 52.1% of children under the age of 18 in the US are poor or low income. 38.5 million children. I mean, that is scandalous in the richest country in the world. So that this Biden's proposal would reduce the number of children in poverty by as much as 54%. So that's a big impact. You know, there's still will be poor poor children and there should be no poor children in the US but this is a big start to tackling it excellent well thanks is there anything else you think people should know um yeah if people want to get in touch with us yes very important yes definitely um our email is election action number 4 for caregivers at gmail.com wonderful that was Rachel West of Election Action for Mothers. You heard how you can get in touch with her, and we will have more about the proposal at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Hello, you, our beloved listeners, probably know that my new book, Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Leaves Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone, is out now from bold type books in the US and Hearst Publishers in the UK and Ireland. But if you didn't know that, hello, I wrote a book. It is about how loving your job is a scam designed to get you to work harder for less money and in worse conditions, and it covers the work and organizing of a variety of workers in fields from domestic work to teaching to nonprofits to academia to art, sports, and tech, and more. So this week, for our main conversation, we are bringing you an excerpt from an event hosted by the wonderful folks at Pilsen Community Books in Chicago, a worker-owned bookstore, which featured friends of the show Micah Utrecht of Jacobin and Kenzo Shibata of the Chicago Teachers Union. In addition to my book, we discussed what loving your job has to do with the expectation that teachers in Chicago and elsewhere will march back into the classroom and expose themselves and their students and their families to COVID in order to keep capital accumulation going. In the days since we recorded this event, the CTU's struggle to stay remote until in-person is truly safe has escalated. The mayor, Lori Lightfoot, backed off a threat to lock teachers out of the Google classrooms they have used during the pandemic. But this morning, Thursday, as I'm recording, she has said that she wants a deal today. The union, in response, released an open letter to parents, some of whom have publicly stated that they do not feel comfortable with C CPS's promises on safety. The letter notes, quote, initial CPS proposals lacked many of the basic safety elements found in other school districts, like COVID testing and contact tracing, health and safety metrics, and protocols for the inevitable school closures that will result from reopening buildings without control of community spread. It wasn't until educators voted overwhelmingly to take collective action that CPS leadership showed some urgency about negotiating the critical details of its plan. 
All through this period, red flag after red flag has been raised. We've seen CPS leadership fail to meet its own meager safety protocols and fail to provide the PPE, deep cleaning, and adequate ventilation it promised. Positive COVID-19 cases began to climb as just a handful of students and staff returned to our buildings last month. End quote. The letter continues, quote, CPS and the mayor are still threatening to lock out teachers and shut students out of all learning if we don't capitulate on critical outstanding safety issues. We sincerely hope that doesn't happen. Thousands of our members are also CPS parents. We love your children. We desperately want to be back in classrooms with them, but we are not willing to accept the inevitable illness and death a reckless reopening will inflict on our city. We will, of course, continue to follow this story, and we bring you this conversation today in solidarity with everyone fighting for a safe workplace, time to care, and time to rest and grieve and be fully human in this moment. You can watch the full video and buy the book from Pilsen Community Books. We will put a link up at the Descent website. Hi, I'm Mandy Medley. I'm one of the co-owners and workers at Pilsen Community Books, and as someone who has been following and inspired by Sarah Jaffe's work for such a long time, I am so, so, so excited to welcome Micah Utrecht, Kenzo Shibata, and Sarah here tonight to celebrate Sarah's new book, Work Won't Love You Back, out just yesterday from Bold Type Books. And thank you especially to Kenzo for joining us here tonight during a week that is uh, very eventful for Chicago teachers. We're very grateful that you're here. Micah Utrecht is the deputy editor of Jacobin Magazine. He is the author of two books that we love to carry in the store, Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity, um, and a co-author of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, and co-editor of a collection of oral histories with new left radicals who took jobs in industries like steel and auto with the intention of organizing after the 1960s, which will be out in 2022 from Verso. He hosts a Jacobin radio podcast, Vast Majority, and is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Kenzo Shibata is an educator and socialist labor organizer in Chicago. He's a founding member of a caucus of rank-and-file educators, a high school vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union, and president of the Illinois chapter of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. And he's host of the Class Time podcast and stream. And with that, I will turn it over to Micah. Thanks, Micah. So uh, we are here, of course, to talk about Sarah's uh, wonderful new book, uh, Work Won't Love You Back. Um, and uh, there's a lot in the book that is of direct relevance to a lot that's going on in this city right now, uh, which we're going to get into with uh, Kenzo, especially in a second. But uh, why don't we just start, Sarah, uh, with you uh, reading a little bit from the book? Yeah, so I thought I'd just read a little bit from the introduction here because that will sort of set up the conversation that we're going to have, which I imagine we will spend a lot of time talking about a few kinds of workers in particular. Um, but to give us a little background here, um, so this is sort of midway through my introduction. The idea that work should be a source of fulfillment has become common sense in our world to the extent that saying otherwise is an act of rebellion. The Italian theorist Antonio Gramsci reminded us that common sense itself is a product of history, that popular beliefs are in fact material forces, and they change when material conditions change. His concept of hegemony explains to us how one group comes to arrange the world in its own interests, through culture and ideas as well as material forces. Hegemony is the process by which we are made to consent to the power structures that shape our lives. The thing about common sense is that it's often wrong, and we may even be aware on some level that it's wrong. 
You are, after all, well, listening to me read from this book, because something told you that maybe, just maybe, the problem is not you, it's work. But we don't have to truly believe in order to consent. Many of us simply act as if we believe, and that is enough. Max Weber famously wrote of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, the way that the rise of Protestantism lent a belief in hard work as a calling and deferred gratification in heaven to the developing capitalism of the time. The first spirit of capitalism valued above all the accumulation of more and more money for its own sake, you know, like those hedge funders that are all mad about GameStop, not for the sake of consumption. My goodness, no. Consumption and other forms of pleasure were in fact to be avoided. One worked to be good, not to be happy. This process may have started with the church, but it had long since become common sense, Weber wrote. The Puritan wanted to work in a calling. We are forced to do so. French scholars Luc Boltanski and Yves Chapella have built on Weber to argue that the spirit of capitalism has changed over time, bringing with it new versions of the work ethic. The spirit of capitalism of each age, they wrote, must answer three questions. How will people secure a living for themselves and their families? How do they find enthusiasm for the process of accumulation, even if they are not going to pocket the profits? And how can they justify the system and defend it against accusations of injustice? Justification of capitalism is necessary because people do challenge it. People look at its processes and see the inequality that has resulted. They rebel, they strike, they riot, they refuse to go quietly to work in a pandemic. Those challenges then force crises and changes in the system, which has to adapt to find new justifications, new mechanisms by which we'll consent to keep working. Those struggles spill over from the workplace into the rest of our lives. Political philosopher Nancy Fraser calls them boundary struggles, battles over the lines between economy and society, production and reproduction, work and family. Great. Well, thank you. So, um... I, my first question is just a general question of um, why why do why are we being forced to love our jobs at this point? <laughs> is it is it just because like the nature of work has changed so much uh, that you know we're not working in these jobs where nobody gives a shit if you <laughs> hate your job as long as you stamp out the certain number of widgets that you need to get on the line out every day then that's fine. Is it because the, the, those jobs are, are are not as central to you know in, in raw numbers this, uh, our economy in the same way or is it is it something else? Is it in response to the the kind of movements that you just mentioned? Like why do we have to put up? Why do we have to wrestle with this damn question? Why did you have to write a book about this in the first? I know, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer there is all of the above, right? Like the argument that I following Boltanski and Chapello take in that section there is that the demands of the 60s and 70s, right, were for a variety of things. They were famously, you know, the Lordstown workers, um, Lordstown syndrome, the sort of discontent with industrial work was rife in the late 60s. And and this is going to come up in your thing you're working on, Micah. Um, And so workers are demanding a lot of things in those moments, right? They're demanding less boring work. They're demanding an end to the speed up. They're also demanding changes to their unions, right? You have things like the, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement in uh, in Detroit, or Detroit Revolutionary Union. It's the Dodge. I always get the acronyms wrong. Sorry. Drum. Drum. Um, read Detroit, I Do Mind Dying. It's a wonderful book. Um, 
they're arguing for less racist workplace and less racist unions. Um, so you have this sort of challenge that's going on both to the existing sort of structures of the, the labor force and the old left and all of these things. And also you have the profit squeeze happening. So like literally it becomes too expensive for capital. Well, it's not too expensive for capital, but they don't like the fact that they're not making profits because workers are getting actually a bigger and bigger share of the pie. So the solution to that was ship the jobs overseas, automate as many of them as possible, or just even move them to the parts of the U.S. that don't have unions in them. So, you know, we have more factories in North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, um, Alabama, right? And then you also get the incorporation of these demands in really just backwards ways, right? The way that that capital is quite good sometimes at absorbing the demands of workers and turning them back around on us. So my favorite example of this is the port trucking industry, which some folks are probably aware of that was up until 1981, I believe, early 1980s in any case, was a unionized industry. They were, they were Teamsters. Um, it was mostly white men. And you had drivers of color and women saying, we can't get into this union, we can't get these good jobs. So the solution, instead of sort of pushing the union to open up the good jobs to the people who want them, is to deregulate the entire industry. This goes through Congress, bipartisan bill, Ted Kennedy was involved. And what you get is the port truckers are Uber before Uber. So then they all become independent contractors, they have to own their own trucks or lease them from the company. They're basically going through all of the same conditions that Uber drivers are now long before there was an app involved. And this is sort of the way that this really cynical motivation of, of you know, deregulating things gets blamed on workers of color. And this, of course, just stokes racism. And uh, then we have a, the mess that we're in now, right? So, and then the other thing that happens as, as the jobs are disappearing is those single incomes don't work anymore. So women have to go to work right? Because you no longer have the factory job that would actually pay enough, pay the so-called family wage. Women have to go to work. Women, Gabe Winant's forthcoming book is very good on this. Women end up moving into industries like healthcare, and those become a bigger and bigger part of the economy. The service jobs are the ones where you have to show up and smile all day. Now, your book, uh, th there's a profile, like each chapter is basically a profile of a different industry where these demands are being put on workers ranging from uh, teachers to domestic workers to artists to nonprofit workers uh, and academia. Can you just sketch out maybe what the through lines are, what the threads are that run through all of those different uh, uh, industries that you cover? Like what are, what are the sort of basic tenets of this uh, demand that you love your job and you love your work. It just sort of doesn't matter which industry you work in, but that, that yeah. is like central to that 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 uh, demand on you and your emotional inner life. Yeah, so I, I separated the book into two sections because the more I sort of thought about this and researched and reported, I found that there are sort of two directions that this goes in, right? One is the sort of creative work that is rooted in these sort of old narratives about artists that they weren't really workers and this wasn't really work and artists are just sort of naturally gifted and brilliant and magical and you will make art even if you are starving and living in a garret and cutting off your ear and, and dying of consumption or whatever it was right um and that narrative 
ends up creeping into fields like journalism, which, you know, once upon a time wasn't actually this sort of romanticized thing. It was a every town had a newspaper and that newspaper probably had a union. Um, sometimes towns had like three or four newspapers. I know that's crazy. Um, and then the, I start the book with the unpaid work that women mostly are expected to do in the home and the way that that shapes all of this caring labor that is, of course, because Kenzo is going to talk about it here, not done only by women at all. It's in fact done by more and more men. And in fact, one of the things that shapes the last 40 years or so um, is that more and more men are doing these jobs that were gendered feminine. And that has a lot of impacts on things. Um, and so I guess what are the like uh, for, I mean, we're talking about the demands that love that, that about love that are made on workers today. I mean, uh, it seems to me like you you say this in the book that like instead of wages, you get love, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. it's it's a it's a nice like substitute for, you know, <laughs> actually uh, ponying up some substantive, stuff for workers it's like because if you if, if you're if, like if the fulfillment if, you, if your job is your life's fulfillment then right. like it's fine that your wages are stagnant it's fine that we're trying to cut your right. benefits it's fine that we're trying to gigify you or whatever or um, and also schools in, in, when you're going to get coronavirus yeah, right, right exactly i was going to say uh, with teachers it's like uh well you know if you're it, it, you write about how it, it interacts insidiously with things like standardized testing it's like well if your standardized testing scores aren't good enough well that's just because you clearly don't like love your job and love your students enough um and yes that's exactly where i was going to go which is that if you if you love your job enough and if you love your students enough uh then then you'll you'll march into uh into hell into the buildings of chicago public schools uh, right. e even as numbers are astronomically high, uh, yeah. even as we have like literally thousands of people dying every day, like you will do that because of, uh, because of your love for, for the, the profession and for your students. I mean, Kenzo, uh, are you, yeah. you feel like you're hearing that whether, uh, explicitly or implicitly right now here in, in Chicago with the fight that you and your union are currently in? We're definitely feeling that. And it's so jarring because the reason why we are fighting so hard to stay learning, um, you know, with the distance learning is because we love our kids. And, you know, I've talked to my students. I teach seniors and juniors and overwhelmingly they, you know, what they're saying is they, they're pissed that they're going to miss prom and graduation for very good reason. Like a lot of my students had to climb mountains to get to where they are at this moment. And, you know, in CPS, eighth grade graduations are very big deal. And then senior graduations, an even bigger deal, uh, especially if you're teaching students in more working class and poor communities. So I feel them on that, but they also say, but we also don't want to die. And they know, and I, it, it, there's never been a more just clear tale of two cities tale as like how the pandemic has hit us here. Uh, the, one of the first people that I lost was a former student of mine named Carl, who I was a mentor to him. Um, so he was 31 years old. Um, and he died, um, within the first three months or so of the pandemic. So for black and brown communities and working class communities in Chicago, the, there is a pandemic, you know, we feel that. And for teachers teaching in those communities, they're sensing that before a lot of, you know, 
people, their peers probably. And uh, it's why 20% of parents have opted their students into distance learning. Um, and 80% say hell no, even though that, you know, it's, has, it's been a travesty. So, um, it, it's been just, we we're very clear eyed about what we want and what we want for our kids. Um, but, um, being beaten over the head over and over again about how we don't love them because of that, it's infuriating and, and traumatizing. Can you remind people what the current state of things is with CPS and Mayor Lori Lightfoot now, what's being demanded of you and what the union is responding with? We are in a, you know, this is the perfect moment to be talking about this um, because this is one of those moments where I'm getting texts that I don't have an answer for. Um, Sarah knows and Mike have known because they both have sent me those texts <laughs> many a time. Um, Sarah's great because she's always like, should I buy my ticket to Chicago whenever we're about to like go on strike <laughs> or something? Um, but where we are now is uh, we voted overwhelmingly as a House of Delegates. Those are the representatives for the union that all are rank and file members. We voted overwhelmingly to continue teaching uh, distance learning, um, even though the Board of Education has maintained pre-K through eighth teachers in this phase now um, will be called back to work. Um, as high school teach as a high school teacher, I. Um, well, you know, just to back up, I was shocked because I at one point was told I would have to go back, um, even though my wife is immunocompromised. She has stage four breast cancer um, and I asked for an exception on it. Um, I don't know if it was actually a paperwork error, um, but they rescinded it. It could have also been the tweet that I sent that got 12,000 faves saying the Board of Ed has forced me back to work, um, you know, and this is you know my condition. Um, so I just also been maintaining to people that even though that was rescinded for me, um, I'm still going to be standing with my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to cross a picket line, um, because I have more Twitter followers than other teachers do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is critically important. I mean, I, I haven't read every article about this, but I did read one in the Chicago sometimes about uh, a teacher, a it's just a heartbreak. I mean, every story you read about Anybody who dies of COVID is obviously heartbreaking, but one of your coworkers somewhere in the city, I remember she said that she, she was immunocompromised. She left her house eight times, I think, in the entirety of the pandemic mm -hmm. thus far, because she was so terrified. She went to school once, caught COVID at school, and died very quickly afterwards. Um, so this is not a theoretical question. There's already teacher, Chicago teachers who have died yeah. because of the push to reopen these schools. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more if this continues to happen. And also, much like with everything that the CTU does, there are literally millions of teachers around the country who look to the CTU. Mm -hmm. Actually, millions, however many teachers. There are many teachers around the country. There are probably uh, millions of teachers. Sure, probably. Assume, right? Yeah. Uh, who look to the to what the CTU is doing, uh, and you know the CTU. I mean, you know, Sarah says in the book that, that you know the teachers' strike wave started in 2012, and in 2012, of course, that's when the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike, and the CTU has really set the pace for teachers' unionism around the country. So uh, all eyes will really uh, be on what goes on with you and your your union, Kenzo, and uh, we're obviously backing you 100. Yeah. percent um, Sarah says in the book that teachers are perhaps the ultimate laborers of love. Yeah. And uh, maybe this is a question for both of you. Teaching seems different because if you work uh, in an, another one of these uh, kind of industries that you profile in the book and you, and you know that your boss is using 
this idea of loving your job to try to squeeze more profit out of you, to try to squeeze more work out of you, to settle for less money, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you like, if you think about it, you're like, okay, that's obviously bullshit. But with teaching, it's difficult because people like Kenzo really do love their students. As you just heard Kenzo say, like, uh, and in fact, as you talk about in the book, Sarah, there's a history of like teachers unionism done the bad way, where essentially that love for students is rejected. And then you're, you just talk about, you know, uh, you're, you know, the classic example is 1968 in Ocean Hill. Al Shanker, baby. Yeah, exactly. This sort of teachers unionism that has that doesn't put <laughs> that love of students and community at Ooh. front and center. Uh, yeah. And it, it ends in very bad ways. So that's that's a very tough situation to navigate because it's never cut and dry when you're being when you're being beaten with your love for students and when your love actually should be put front and center. The thing that I think is the pandemic has really shown is a couple of things, right? Because like, I'm working on a story right now, actually, about teachers, like, finding ways to heroically, like, be creative teachers virtually, which is just friggin' impossible, right? And it's interesting because, like, a lot of the, the way that you get beaten up for not loving your students is because it's easy enough to argue that, like, teaching isn't really capital accumulation. Nobody's really profiting from you going into schools, except what we've seen, what the pandemic has made very clear, what a teacher's strike also makes very clear, is that capital accumulation doesn't happen if all the kids are at home because the parents then have to take care of them and it screws the entire system up. And so what's really striking to me is I'm talking to teachers like Kenzo, like all of these teachers that I talked to for the story who are working themselves just like to a, you know, their eyes are crossed, losing their minds, just staring at a screen all day, trying to reach these kids in whatever way they can. And because that is separated from like the physical part of like, I don't want to say like the babysitting role of it, but like literally being responsible for these children in mm -hmm. a room somewhere, the part that takes that away from anybody else having to do it. You see so clearly that like to Chicago public schools, like that's actually what they care about. They are not putting this kind of effort mm -hmm. into giving you support to be a better teacher remotely. They are just like, get those kids back in the room however we can. And one of the real just prime examples of, of like how we live in a failed society. Um, and I'll be more uplifting later, but uh, <laughs> the fact that we can't just sit around a table and be like, okay, this is a big hole in society that we need to, to fill in um, is the fact that, you know, teachers like Sarah, you're saying we're being hammered to uh, perform during this. Like we're, we're being hammered to recreate the classroom online, uh, many of us doing this for the first, and I'm an, ex you know, y'all know I'm an extremely online person. This, <laughs> it doesn't translate to the classroom. And, um, you know, we're being forced to do this while our students, many of whom, because of the pandemic have to work to support their families, their, their parents are getting laid off and it's not like their, their parents are get laid off and they get unemployment. It, it's not that simple for, you know, working class uh, folks, especially like undocumented un, uh, folks, like if they lose their jobs, the parents who, you know, who you've been maybe living, working at a factory for years, you know, all the kids are going to have to get jobs at Target or Costco then, um, making less money. Um, but you know, contributing so they all can stay together. And Sarah, I love how you brought up how, you know, when, you know, women were called into work, how that changed the family dynamic. We're seeing this hyper neoliberal uh, process right now, just, you know, wreaking havoc on the families. 
And then as teachers, we're expected to um, have our data still look good. Um, and, you know, you, you know what's going through these students' lives. And that's another stress that we have is trying to, um, to patch over for capitalism, where, you know, where, where capitalism fails society, teachers and other care workers, we're the ones that have to, like, cement it over and pretend like there's no problem. Right. Well, in, in in normal times, even when there's not a pandemic right. going on, because we don't have a mm-hmm. welfare state, you are the one. You, you, the, what we do still barely clinging to is a public education system. And the teacher becomes, as, as Sarah said, the ultimate laborer of love, the person who is uh, has to do everything from being a teacher to being a, a social worker to play all of these roles because there's all of these gaps in, in, our, in our social safety net. Um, th- another thing I wanted to bring up is that uh, you know, in 2012, the CTU's strike played this really key role in completely shifting the narrative around public education and education reform. I mean, neoliberal education reformers were on the march in 2012 when the CTU went on strike. And it seems clear to me that the CTU strike was the single most important thing in really shifting that narrative and really putting the neoliberal reform types on their on their back heel. But uh that's been in sort of decline in recent years until basically the last couple months when I feel like there's been this kind of revival of, of, of liberal, they're like trotting out the old talking points uh, that that were used to blame teachers for the state mm-hmm. of students, you know, their poverty and the and state of schools and low test scores and all of that stuff. I mean, there's, there's a, a rising discourse, for example, among some liberal political writers about like the the desperate need to op- reopen the schools right now because uh be, well because it sucks to not be in school. They but, don't like having their kid at home. <laughs> maybe, but uh but but there's a revival of that discourse. Of course, we're in Chicago where our mayor is Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who is a a real darling of uh many liberals in this city and and maybe you know around the country for folks who are paying attention. And she's the one who's really pushing for people to return to school. So we have this kind of revival of this liberal anti-teacher and anti-teachers union discourse uh, that's been sort of uh, re-cropped up during the pandemic, it seems. I guess I'd duck. Let's leave it at that. (laughs) Well, I think it's up to you and your union to create those political repercussions for her. It uh, has been for a while, you know? (laughs) I think think this is really interesting, though, right? Because I spent so much time you know, I, I said a lot about teachers and the Chicago teachers in particular in my first book. And so I was like, okay, I'm still going to write about teachers. What do I have to say about teachers that I didn't already say? So I sort of just went deeper into the history of teachers unions. And like, so I learned a lot about the beginnings of the Chicago teachers union, um, the women who ran it and kept getting pushed out of the way by the dudes, which is, you know, <clears throat> um, Margaret Haley, who I really want somebody, maybe it'll have to be me to write a good biography of because she's mm. like an amazing figure, oh, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and that this, when this union was being founded, these women who nobody thought were like smart enough to do this, went and looked up the tax records for the city and found out where the money was being wasted. So they got themselves a raise, they got more school funding. And I was like, oh, this is like CTU now going after the the TIF funding, right? Like it's, and the same thing with like communist teachers in New York were very much doing the same kinds of things, but they were arguing about racial justice. They were arguing about teaching culturally relevant curricula. Like it was just all of these stories. And I was like, oh, 
every time teachers unions are good at what they're doing, this is what they're doing. And we keep losing this. My uh, favorite detail from my research of that same era of Chicago teacher unionism was uh, a protest uh, downtown when uh, teachers who hadn't been paid were uh, hurling mm. textbooks at cops who were on horseback in downtown Chicago. I want so. like a painting of that over my desk. <laughs> and they also right. uh, like stormed uh, the Board of Trade and like yeah, yeah, banks yeah. like <laughs> – they 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 were you know by the definition of the word radical they were radicals they went straight to where the power is and like you know they did stuff that you know I'm afraid to do to be quite honest. <laughs> what, Kenzo? You're not going to go out and throw textbooks at cops tomorrow? Um, on Monday. Don't <laughs> tempt me. Say that on air. <laughs> um, no. So, Micah, this is you mentioned your research, and now I'm going to like be annoying journalist girl be like so i want to hear about your research because the work that you're doing now this oral history book sounds like you're sort of talking about this period that i'm arguing was so pivotal in the shift between the sort of industrial work ethic and what comes after yes that's the great uh tragedy i mean all of these people that i'm interviewing for this book who got jobs they were new left radicals most of them were members of socialist groups of one kind or another um and it's an, actually this is an interesting thing to talk about in light of your book because they're they are not people who uh, you know they, they were like cadre of right. socialist organizations who did like crazy heroic stuff like moving to West Virginia or to Pittsburgh or just you know up, you know Detroit uprooting their lives and moving around the country uh, to work what were you know still very brutal industrial jobs in places like steel and auto also in teaching and some other places, but, but especially in, in heavy industry. Um, and this is, this is uh, Sarah, I'm going to turn around on you. I'm going to ask a question back on you. <laughs> so I don't talk about myself because obviously the people who, who did stuff like that, I mean, there are a tiny number of people. I mean, they weren't, they're, they're not indicative of, a, of the, the broader shifts in the economy or anything, except for how they were victimized by how those industries ended up declining. But they were people who, um, they just they threw everything, their entire lives into this work out of this, I mean, a version of love. Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't love the work itself, but they made the work the central thing in their lives and said, I'm going to, for in many cases, 20, 30, 40 years, dedicate myself to working these kinds of jobs uh, with my my true passion, my true right. work, which is to rebuild the labor movement and try to build the socialist movement, uh, et cetera. And so um, I, I, I wonder what you, you know, on, uh, on the one hand, we see how like a tech worker being, you know, bludgeoned with love <laughs> is, uh, is nefarious. Um, but what, you know, what do you say to the people who, or you know, people like these people who I'm interviewing or people who are, you know, uh, in some cases, burning themselves out in organizations like DSA or other, you know, jobs that they really, really do care, jobs or or organizing that they really, yeah. really do care about. And on some level, you need that kind of willingness to throw your whole being into. I mean, that's how, you know, that's how the civil rights, that's how every movement in, in American history has ever succeeded is because people were willing to make those kind of sacrifices. Uh, but on the other hand, we know the dangers of doing that right. and, and burnout and everything else. So how do you weigh all of that stuff? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like um, I wrote a piece for Dissent that's actually kind of a review of Anne Helen Peterson's book on burnout and kind of a combo combination of other things. And one of the things I talked about was like, activist burnout, which she doesn't really touch on in that book, but is a really real thing like we're talking about. And it 
it's not good for the movement, right? But the thing is, like, you know, now we just sort of have these discourses of, like, self-care, which, especially in a pandemic when, like, you know, I've been living alone for the last three months. I haven't, like, hugged another person in a while, y'all. Self-care just feels, like, absolutely inadequate. Like, the the degree to which self-care is just not working for me right now is, is really clear. But, you know, when I was in places like Ferguson, when I was reporting for my first book, you know, functional and good and lasting activist cultures that are the kinds of things like what's happened in Ferguson and St. Louis, where they keep winning on the local level, they keep sending people like Cori Bush, hello, to Congress, right? Like, they have a culture of community care, of movement care, of taking care of each other within that space that says, like, if you see somebody... um, who looks like they're wrecked, you say to them like, yo, Kenzo, I think you, you know, what can I do? Can I like bring you lunch tomorrow? You and Aaron and you you seem like you need, you know, something. What can I do to help? Like we have to build a way for the movement to feed us and take care of us. And this to be a thing that like leaves me feeling good at the end of this conversation and not just burnt out and exhausted and leaves Kenzo and the other teachers on the picket lines feeling like the community has their back. And then also in the book, I I write about sort of nonprofit work and activist work and the way that this does come into play when that is also your job. And I profile um, a young woman who was a Planned Parenthood clinic staffer. And this is like very, I mean, she's a combination of many things there, right? She's a nonprofit. You know, she's also a healthcare worker because she's working in a healthcare clinic and she's working in this incredibly politicized environment where there are like literally violent protesters outside every day. Um, It's really intense. And in all of that, when the Planned Parenthood workers said they wanted to unionize because they were, you know, doing all of this for like 12 bucks an hour, um, they were union busted. Mm. And this has happened in, in multi, the Planned Parenthood um, is set up by affiliates. So like different people run the different ones. She was at Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. But this has also happened in Texas, um, especially since the pandemic. There was like an uprising at Planned Parenthood um, of greater New York. Um, this has been an ongoing problem where, again, they do rely on that dedication that people like Ashley felt for the movement. And that she is, you know, and she doesn't work at Planned Parenthood anymore, but she's very much still a part of this movement. But she was like, you know, I have to draw a line between my commitment to this movement and my commitment to this institution. Mm -hmm. And this is a real big challenge. I think it's a big challenge for a lot of us who are in the labor movement, which is like, how much loyalty do we have to like this union qua union or how much loyalty do we have to the broader issues of worker struggle and solidarity. And that sometimes means going at the leadership of your union or taking Mm -hmm. over. Um, You know, but that sometimes means being real public about the fact that like this union, this worker center is not treating its staff well and that they are also workers. And this is also, you know, we, we can't have a movement that fights for rights for workers and doesn't respect the rights of the people who are doing that work. Um, you know, and Kenzo, again, is somebody who's been both a, a union staffer and a rank and file member and leader. And yeah, in both of those positions, you're you're still the same person who's still mm-hmm. dedicated to fighting for labor in general, teachers in particular, Chicago teachers in extra particular. But if you're, you know, your working conditions suck when you're working for the union, that's not good for the union. 
So I think this is a really, you know, it's an important thing to deal with. And it's a difficult one to deal with because like, we all know that we do this. We all know that we work too much for these things um, and that we burn ourselves out and we exhaust ourselves. And also that like, it is on some level, the thing that gives us all life too. Yeah. Uh, being a union staffer, um, you know, I, I taught in the classroom and then I was a union staffer for some time and now I'm back in the classroom and, you know, I went back to the the classroom for some political reasons. You know, I, I believe in the, the rank and file strategy and kind of, you know, folding people into union leadership and staff and then coming back to the rank and file um, eventually. But also um, it was the amount of emotional labor that it took having to work with people on the worst day of their life almost every day of my job. Yeah. Um, this is something that um, a lot of represent, you know, very good union organizers and even field representatives feel because people, you know, you, you're organizing, you're doing the good work, you're trying to build, you know, bigger formations out of labor. But on a daily basis, you have someone call and say, I just got fired or we're going to go on strike or I just lost my insurance while on strike. And my job is a comms person. I also it was an organizing job for me as well. I got to know the rank and file workers and they told their own stories. So almost on a daily basis, I was writing press releases about teachers being denied uh, cancer treatment from districts and things like that. And it was good work and I was very proud of that work I was doing, but I didn't also didn't feel like I could mentally handle that for much longer. Um, and that was a very well-paid job and we had really good insurance and it was a very difficult decision to make as someone who supports a family. But I also knew that um, I it's not something that I could have done like in perpetuity. And uh, kind of coming to that realization um, brought me back to the classroom. And we had a good year and a half or so of, of me being a, a good classroom teacher and then a strike and then a pandemic and <laughs> maybe another strike. Um, so eventually I'll get to retire, I hope. Uh, Sarah, what uh, what is the sort of um, I don't want to say uh, I shouldn't call it anti love, but uh, what's the, <laughs> what's the agenda for the pushback against this abuse of this concept? Anti work, love? man. I'm pro yeah. love. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Can you explain that for people? Yeah, it's really fun because like people, you know, y'all are are my people, but like some of the folks who have been interviewing me about this book, um, are kind of like, well, what, what should we do though? Like what, what kind of advice do you have? And I was like, well, my advice is join a union. Um, my advice is to organize your workplace. Right. Um, because it's not, I, I might, all of you know that work is political. I assume that most people who are watching this stream tonight know that work is political, but that is actually like a thing that I have to sort of spell out for some people who don't spend day in and day out thinking about work in political context, like we do. And so that's been sort of my, my like starting point with a lot of people is understand that these are political problems that are going to have political solutions that have to be made collectively. Um, and we can't really and, say that too many times because yeah. so many of the, our, the, our problems are talked about as having individual solutions, including mm -hmm. when work is shitty. It's just yeah. like, you know, figure out little one weird tricks to deal with your shitty job or to meditate or whatever. It, right. It's an individualized okay. solution, not a collective one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just want to say that, like, I, I, you know, people 
sort of expected me to have like the policy prescriptions at the end and like, look, like I can make some policy prescriptions if anybody wants to hire me to like write policy. Well, probably not, but you know, uh, but I can make you a long list of policy proposals, right? Um, you know, bring back welfare, um, just give the welfare rights movement all the things that they asked for mm -hmm. 50 years ago. Um, <laughs> give us a four day week, give us a three day week, give us a two day week. I'm really up for shortening the working week. All of these things are true. But at the end of the day, I'm a journalist. At the end of the day, I go out and I cover movements and I reported on, you know, a whole bunch of different kinds of work in this book and profiled 10 different people who are organizing their workplace, organizing around the work that they do in the case of, you know, Ray Malone, who is a single mom who's organizing single mothers groups and organizing around basic income, um, because they're already putting out demands, right? And those demands are, are there in each chapter. And I think that that's a great place to start. And yeah, um, organize your workplace. <laughs> support CTU join a, go out and walk a picket line like you know um solidarity is a wonderful form of love where you don't actually have to know people that well but you actually do show up in you know not to get too corny but I, I think y'all are with me on this one that like it is a deep form of love to show up and you know put your butt on the line with somebody else and I think that is one of the things that keeps us coming back to the labor movement over and over and over again is this belief that like an injury to one is an injury to all. And like, that's really actually, you know, a thing that motivates me in the morning and at 9.30 at night. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that that's, that's where we start. That is from, you know, from here, I have no idea where we're gonna end up because I didn't see this pandemic coming, certainly. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is very clear that unless we do a lot of things differently, um, the way we're working now is just gonna kill us all. The nice thing about our politics is that whatever the question is, the answer is usually like, organize a union, make <laughs> your union better. <laughs> it's, it's always, we always have that right right handy whenever we, uh, we need it. Um, you in the in the conclusion of the book, uh, you have a really beautiful section where you talk. Uh, if you'll allow me to get personal for a second, uh, where you talk about um, sort of your own experiences uh, of, of of late and and how you um, I, I, th I think is in the, in the here or you've said it on social media where you sort of like despite writing this whole book that was about this, you sort of have sought. Uh, kind of false solace in work in the past and um, to, 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 you know, distract from the other heartbreaks of, of life. And uh, you have this, this great section where you talk about um, uh, having the time to grieve luxuriously, which I think is something that a lot of people reading that, whatever it is that they're grieving, understand that on a really gut, you know, heart level uh, that, our, the way where our, our our life is our work lives are set up now is that we aren't able to do that. You're supposed to find love in the job, not like take time from the job to to grieve or to do whatever other intense emotion that you mm -hmm. have for the people who you actually do love. And you close that section by saying, "Work will never love us back, but other people will," uh, which is a, a beautiful sentiment of of what solidarity is uh, supposed to be all about. Yeah, I'm actually, um, 
Micah did not know this, so he's not actually setting me up to do this in this annoying way, but I'm actually trying to write about grief right now because um, I started work on this. I basically wrote this book proposal in the wake of my father dying. And of course, we've just been through absolute hell over the last couple of years. Um, as a society, we're all dealing with intense amounts of grief right now. And capitalist society does not have space for that. Mm -hmm. And I think building off of sort of where I ended up in the conclusion to this book very much that like, I think actually taking the time to say like 400 and something thousand people have died of coronavirus in less than a year in this country alone. And that is horrifying. And every one of those people is somebody who we should not have lost the way we did. And to actually like sit with that for long enough to let it sink in no wonder people came out and set everything on fire this summer, you know, mm -hmm. like absolutely. We should be burning everything down. And I just, yeah. So that's, that's a thing that I'm working on, which is, uh, as you might imagine, not easy to write. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that's sort of where I ended up at the end of this and where I've ended up because of my own life and where I've ended up because of everything that's been going on around me in the world and um, I think taking that time, taking the time to, you know, and Kenzo, you wrote about this beautifully, actually, about like, you shouldn't have to sort of parade your personal mm -hmm. trauma in order to be treated like a human. You shouldn't have to write about your wife's illness in the New York Times in order for people to treat you like a human. The way that we end up having the justify need for like human breaks just like mm -hmm. time to be a human time to take care of the people that you love while they're still here in this moment when that feels so much more precarious than it ever has um yeah like this this world of work that we are in that like really wants to take that away from you is just like something we should absolutely destroy you're listening to belabored a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was longtime friends of Belabored, Kenzo Shibata and Mikey Utrecht, speaking with our very own Sarah Jaffe about her new book, Work Won't Love You Back. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that where we talk about the articles that we liked, but alas, did not write ourselves. My pick for this episode's ARG is The Essential Worker Swindle by Sarah Lazar at In These Times. Sometimes praise just feels like a backhanded compliment, and nowhere is that more true than in the workplaces of so-called essential workers, where people are regularly backslapped with expressions of gratitude, standing ovations, musical tributes to their courage, and other accolades that seem to grow louder with every horrifying surge of pandemic fatalities. It's as if praise for essential workers is a kind of 21st century Hail Mary, an indulgence we undertake to muffle our collective sense of guilt and anxiety about the wave of mortality that we hide from, but expect other ordinary individuals to run toward with all the duty-bound sense of honor and selfless professionalism that we've come to expect 
from those public servants. Lazar writes, quote, the endless praise of these essential work from the very architects of their exploitation only serves to justify and normalize a social order in which people who are disproportionately black, brown, and low wage are sacrificed. Instead of talking about how workers are being economically coerced into laboring under deadly conditions, we're talking about heroism. Instead of criticizing policies and political decisions that send workers to their deaths, we are fawning at workers' voluntary self-sacrifice. The essential worker, quote unquote, discourse, has the effect of enforcing discipline on a labor force that CEOs and politicians have decided is dispensable. This is not the language of gratitude, it's the language of throwing people away, unquote. You can't eat praise, after all, and standing ovations won't shield you from a deadly pestilence. Like Sarah Jaffe argues in her new book, the notion that people do something out of love, out of passion, out of devotion to a larger cause, or altruism, or some sense of civic duty, that's often used as a canard for employers and politicians to wheedle out of their basic moral and often legal obligations to protect, respect, and fairly compensate their workers. And the political utility of this extensive praise for essential workers is as in is the constant fist pumping about doing what you love or doing what comes naturally. These are gendered phrases that try to inculcate upon workers, mostly women, that they are not doing real work and therefore should not expect the commensurate wages and benefits and protections that should ideally come with real work. But instead, they're just honoring their maternal and servile instincts and doing what comes naturally. It's not just cultural insensitivity or, quote, toxic positivity, another buzzword you hear a lot these days. There are vested business interests driving this narrative of the saintly essential worker who just keeps soldiering on, fueled by that little bit of encouragement and pats on the head from management that they receive each day. The people who control their labor are pulling a classic bait and switch, trying to replace fair compensation with outlandish praise. So corporate leaders are even more enthusiastic about keeping up productivity levels than they are about the miraculous ability of eventual workers to, while hopefully avoiding death. When we, the public, join the managerial class by pumping up these workers as heroes, that only further distances them from the so-called non-essential workers and alienates them further from the management that gets into harm's way each day. The non-essentials and the elite don't get to be called heroes, unfortunately, but they do get to remain safely at home. More importantly, they get to have a much better chance of surviving this plague. Talk is cheap, certainly cheaper than the cost of labor that one would need to invest in order to protect workers' lives. The gooey praise lavished on the essential workers also takes up space in our public sphere that should actually be devoted to an essential conversation about the true meaning of essential work and who has to do it. Lazar writes, quote, 10 months into this crisis, U.S. society has not had a meaningful collective conversation about what a just shared sacrifice would look like. We have not talked about how to evenly distribute the burden of danger, how to make sure that each human life is valued as we tackle the mammoth challenges before us. With no real public debate, we are operating under the assumption that if sacrifices must be made, it is the most exploited sectors of the working class that should make them, an attitude that prevails during normal times, but now with brutal efficiency. Unquote. Of course, we should underscore that they don't use words like brutal efficiency. In the Orwellian world of pandemic economic, the more exploited you are, the more essential you are. The more essential your work is, the more disposable your life is. The term essential represents the true value of the labor these workers contribute, to be sure. And that's not lost on the bosses, of course. They are experts in the labor theory of value in that. But essential workers, almost by definition, are not paid what their work is worth. 
So instead of being paid for their labor, they are cheered for their virtue. This is not to say that we shouldn't laud workers when they go beyond the call of duty and perform heroic feats. And it's true that sometimes people do act on moral principle at the expense of personal gain. But the deceptive label of essential and all the shallow plaudits that accompany it remind me of why the Hunts Point workers went on strike. When they took those jobs, they did not enlist themselves for the front lines of a global public health crisis. I am sure they would trade all the praise that has been heaped on essential workers in order to restore the lives of the co-workers who are sickened or who perished from the virus. Instead of those laudatory words, I'm pretty sure they would rather have a job that paid a wage that could sustain a healthy family. They'd rather have work that is decent enough to allow them and their communities to thrive without fearing for their lives every time they show up for work. Health, contentment, family, those are some of the aspects of life that are truly essential. And no, a job should not be one of them. Last week, I couldn't stop watching and laughing at the GameStop saga, where a bunch of Redditors decided to take on a hedge fund by blowing up the stock price of GameStop, the mall video game company that many of us remember back from when we used to go to malls. What does this have to do with labor? I am glad you asked. That is why I chose this piece from Grace Blakely, titled The Mutiny of the Mini Capitalists at Tribune, to talk to you about this week. She starts out writing about a book some of you may be familiar with. Quote, In 1976, Peter Drucker published The Unseen Revolution, How Pension Fund Socialism Came to America. The book opened with a sentence that would have seemed astonishing at the time and looks vaguely amusing today. If socialism is defined as ownership of the means of production by the workers, then the United States is the first truly socialist country. Pension fund socialism is based on a very appealing idea that social change can happen slowly, iteratively, and without much overt conflict. Rather than fighting against their bosses on the factory floor or against the capitalist state that exists to defend their bosses in the streets, workers could use their power as owners to pressure businesses into acting more responsibly, end quote. That doesn't work, though. Grace continues, because investment money is not evenly distributed. Quote, the wealthy have a lot, the middle classes have a little, and many have almost nothing. In other words, people with pension wealth are not a class. They do not have a shared set of common interests that could bring them together to agitate for social change. End quote. So then what happened? Redditors figured out how to game the market. A little bit. I'm not going to read you Grace's description of what happened, assuming that you have probably seen quite a few takes by now, and you can find the link to the piece at the Descent website if you need a refresher course on how short selling works. Instead, I'm going to talk about the point that's worth thinking about for workers. So Grace writes, quote, On the face of it, the Redditor revolution couldn't be more different from Drucker's unseen revolution. These investors are directly investing their own cash, they're coordinated and organized, and they're intent on creating as much havoc within financial markets as possible, not gently nudging companies to be more socially responsible. But in reality, both rest on the same misguided logic. The idea that workers can't exercise any real power as workers, so they should try to exercise it as owners instead. To understand why this kind of organizing is never going to pose a threat to financial markets, let alone capitalism as a whole, we should consider what the aims of organizing should be. Generally, organizing should try to achieve three goals, disrupting capital accumulation, highlighting a central social antagonism, and giving people a sense of their own power and agency, end quote. The idea that we can all exercise power and make change as little mini-owners, she notes, is one that was deliberately sold to us by the same politicians who worked so hard to break union power. Quote, 
There's a reason that politicians like Thatcher and Reagan were so keen to encourage people to buy shares and build up private pension pots. They wanted to create a class of mini capitalists to disguise the fundamental antagonism between labor and capital. The more middle class shareholders there are, the easier it is for the wealthy to convince everyone else it is in their interests to constantly inflate asset prices. End quote. But nevertheless, the story has something to give us beyond just some laughs, and I did get a lot of laughs. She notes, quote, The Redditors have realized the power of collective action. In a world that teaches most people they are utterly powerless to change anything, that is no small feat. And thanks to the swift action by the gatekeepers of financial capitalism to prevent trading in shares such as GameStop, they've also revealed to huge numbers of people that the system is rigged that a mini-capitalist really isn't any kind of capitalist at all. Instead, they're the silent partner in an alliance against workers all over the world. If anything good comes out of this episode other than some funny memes, it could be that the Redditors use their newfound collective consciousness, however limited it may be, in their workplaces, in the polling booth, and on the streets. End quote. So the real question remains, how to turn the energy of hundreds of people willing to risk some cash in order to vicariously, as one tweet put it, punch a hedge funder in the balls, into a real movement for change, one that understands the real contradictions at the heart of capitalism, won't be solved by a trading app. But it has been interesting to see just how much anger there still is out there at finance capital and at a market that keeps going up as millions of people suffer. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned, of course, for much more on the Amazon Union Drive, Chicago and other teachers fighting premature reopening, and other worker rebellions in the age of COVID-19. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, for sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. Special thanks to all of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either through the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page with our shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. If you don't have any spare money right now and those stimulus checks just haven't shown up, we understand. But if you were going to put it into the GameStop stock, Perhaps you could toss a little bit of it our way. There are some gorgeous Molly Cabeville worker portraits for the highest tier if you do. And as always, you can find out more on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus with us, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a delivery driver or a grocery worker, a street vendor, teacher, healthcare worker, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thank you again for listening, and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.